Hey, I'm Steph, and this is Not Today. Hello and welcome. My name is Steph, I'm your host, and I have a cold. And I don't think it's the kind of cold that is just going to make my voice lower and grovelier and sexier like I would like. I think I'm just congested and nasally, which is unfortunate for everyone involved considering this is a podcast. So sorry guys, but the show must go on, you know? So if I do sound different, that is why I am battling a bit of a cold. I do hate to come on here and be like, I'm sick, but I am sick. <laughs> so, so that's what's going on. But um, hey, bonus episode 16 came out today, and that is over on our Patreon. That was a wild story. We talked about John Wayne Thompson, which actually is also a crazy thing. This story is about John Wayne Bobbitt, and over there is John Wayne Thompson. In my opinion, I prefer John Wayne Thompson because much better John Wayne, but... Anyway, John Wayne Thompson was involved in a really insane farming accident that ended up tearing off both of his arms while he was alone on his family's farm with just his dog. And somehow, as we know, he did manage to survive that. And he did keep his arms, which is amazing. So if you're interested in hearing that absolutely bonkers tale, head over to patreon.com slash nottodaypodcast. And Alex is on that episode as well. So we both talked about that over there. So you know what to do. But today we are going to be continuing on with part two of Lorena and John Wayne Bobbitt's story. And there is a lot to cover. We are going to be diving into Lorena's trial and the aftermath of that and oh my god, we have a lot to get into. Before we begin, I did want to give a trigger warning. This part of the story will contain description of domestic violence as well as sexual assault. We're going to be getting into Lorena's side of the story. So with all of that said, let's get into part two. Where we left off, it was 1994. 24-year-old Lorena Bobbitt was about to go on trial for malicious wounding. She had turned down the plea bargain for four months in jail for admitting this was a premeditated attack and was now facing a 20-year sentence should she be found guilty. And that brings us to day one of her trial. 15 to 20 satellite trucks and about 200 reporters were outside the courthouse. The trial was going to be broadcast into millions of homes. The atmosphere around the courthouse was like a circus. There were spectators and vendors. There were vendors with booths set up with people selling t-shirts, hats, and underwear. They were even selling the Severed Parts t-shirt signed by John Wayne Bobbitt himself. And there were vendors selling sausages. I mean, people were really hamming it up. A Newsweek poll that was done indicated that 60% of the country was paying attention to the trial. The trial would come down to who the jury believed more, Lorena or John because both of them had very conflicting accounts of their relationship and what happened that night. As I mentioned in part one, Lorena's defense team would be Blair Howard, Jim Lowe, and Lisa Kemmler, and they would be up against Paul Ebert and Mary Grace O'Brien as the prosecution. And it was going to be quite the fight. 
when it came to John's trial, Lorena never got an opportunity to talk about the long history of abuse that allegedly occurred in their relationship. The judge in John's trial determined that only a five-day period would be admissible in court. So when Lorena took the stand, she was only able to talk about the night of the incident and a few days surrounding it, but nothing else. But her trial would be much different. She would be able to discuss her relationship to John Wayne Bobbitt as a whole to illustrate how it led up to the night of June 23, 1993. When the jury was selected, it was understood that everyone had already heard of the case, because you would have had to live under a rock to not know who Lorena and John Wayne Bobbitt were at that point. But during their selection, the jury were basically asked, will you be able to keep an open mind about the facts that will be presented? Lisa Kemmler opened for the defense. She introduced Lorena as a, quote, young, petite, delicate, and naive woman who, for four years, the evidence will show, suffered extreme brutality, which included things such as rape, beatings, and threats of more violence. She said, at the time of the incident, Lorena was a battered woman, and her husband's penis was the thing that she could not escape. It caused her the most pain, fear, and humiliation. She said, quote, by the end of this case, I submit to you, you will come to one conclusion, and that is that a life is more valuable than a penis. It was a strong opening. The prosecution led with, there was no justification for Lorena to take the law into her own hands. She acted in anger and out of revenge. The prosecution began by calling witnesses, which painted a picture of that night, like police who were there. They went over the medical steps that were taken and passed around photos of John Wayne Bobbitt's mutilated genitals, the severed penis, as well as the eight-inch knife that was used. I believe in part one I said it was a seven-inch knife. It was actually an eight-inch knife. Tomato, tomato. These images, of course, would have a powerful impact on the jury. I mean, they were shocking images. In the same vein, they called Detective Peter Wentz, who had initially taken Lorena's statement at the hospital the night of the incident, when she had said she was angry, John never waited for her to have an orgasm. I did read this statement in part one when talking about John's trial, but just as a reminder, this is what her statement was. Quote, I was angry already. Then I turned my back, and I, the first thing I saw was the knife. Then I said... I asked him if he was satisfied with what he did, and he just half asleep or something. He always have orgasm, and he doesn't wait for me to have an orgasm. He's selfish. I don't think it's fair. So I pulled back the shirt, or the sheets. Then I did it. For obvious reasons, this statement made her look really bad. The prosecution also called John to the stand. Their objective was to paint Lorena as volatile, jealous, and a violent person before the night of June 23rd. On the stand, John testified on June 14th he had begun working at a bar called Legends, and when he began that job, Lorena's attitude had changed toward him. She didn't like he had taken that job because he would be around women, and she was worried they would hit on him or vice versa. He added, Lorena said she would be checking in on him a lot at work, spying on him to make sure he wasn't doing anything he shouldn't be. The prosecution called to the stand John's brother and sister-in-law as well. 
and both of them testified Lorena had gotten upset one night out of nowhere when they were at a theme park altogether. According to them, Lorena had lost her temper as they were standing in line waiting for the bumper cars, and all of a sudden scratched John in the face and started punching him. And as she did this, John just stood there and took it because he didn't know what was going on. And I'm sorry, but that just sounds incredibly unbelievable to me. In my opinion, that just sounds very made up. Or like there's just a large portion of that story that's been omitted to make Lorena sound like she's some crazy woman who has outbursts out of nowhere. And John is just some innocent man who takes random abuse from his wife while they're standing in line for bumper cars. But of course they want to paint her that way because that's the most convenient way to make him look as innocent as possible. But it's also incredibly unrealistic. Logically, there would have to be some sort of reason or spark for her to have an outburst like that, standing in line for bumper cars. But I guess they were just hoping that the jury would believe that she's just violent and she just has violent outbursts out of nowhere and John is just so innocent and he just took it because he's just so kind. I don't know. I, I wasn't buying it personally. The prosecution called a co-worker of Lorena's, Connie James, as well. This co-worker testified that the two of them had a conversation about what they would do if their partners ever cheated on them. Connie had testified that she joked if her husband ever cheated, she would kill him. And Lorena allegedly said, quote, I would cut his dick off because that would hurt him more than just killing him. And that's a quote according to Connie. The prosecution had unfortunately done a really good job, and because they had done so well, they were expected to rest for a while and turn it over to the defense. There was no question whether or not Lorena had done it. She admitted it fully. The trial was going to examine what had gotten her to that point. But like the jurors in John's trial said, the images and the actual incident was so intense and shocking that it was hard to see past it, so it would be an uphill battle for the defense. Between the brutal photos of the crime and the witnesses they called to the stand portraying Lorena to be this vicious, violent woman, it was not going to be easy to turn this around. When it was time for the court to be turned over to the defense, they felt Lorena needed to take the stand to lay out the background of her relationship with John. According to Blair Howard, she wasn't given any instruction on what to say. He told her to just be herself. She began by telling the court about the first time she met John. She said that she was in love with him immediately. To her, he represented everything. That was the beginning of her staying with her family in the U.S., which was incredibly important to her. According to Lorena, their relationship was great, up until about a month after they were married, when John allegedly abused her for the first time. I went over the specifics of the first instance of abuse in part one, but as a bit of a recap, the first time John physically abused Lorena was after they had left a bar. John was allegedly driving home drunk and had punched her in the chest. This next bit of information, when I talk about their relationship, is all coming from Lorena's testimony on the stand. So we can assume that what I'm saying is alleged. That way I don't have to say alleged before every single thing or, you know, according to Lorena. This is all according to Lorena, and it's alleged, I suppose, because John wasn't found guilty. I'm pretty sure that's how it works. I don't entirely know. I'm not a lawyer but I'm also not trying to get sued, so here we go. Lorena hoped the first time John had gotten physical with her would be the only time that he would be physical with her. 
But from there, the abuse continued and only got worse. There started to be incidents of pushing and shoving, which then escalated to more violence. Their neighbors at Maplewood Park Apartments recalled hearing arguments constantly. However, they would really only hear John yelling. It was no secret around their community that John was a very dominating man. Lorena was very small and a timid woman. And according to interviews with their neighbors, John treated her poorly, even out in the open, not just behind closed doors. They recalled things like when they would go out grocery shopping, he would make her carry all the groceries on her own back to their apartment, and he would walk behind her, carrying nothing, just like towering over her and acting all macho, which is weird and unnecessary. John couldn't hold down a job, which put the financial burden completely on Lorena. The couple had bought a house, however, it had been foreclosed on when Lorena couldn't keep up with the payments by herself. She had gotten multiple jobs to keep up with all their bills, but according to neighbors and those who knew him, John would rarely, if ever, have a single job for longer than a few weeks. And it was around that time that John began verbally abusing Lorena. He would tell her she was ugly, she was either too fat or too skinny, and he didn't like her clothes. In addition to stealing $7,000 from her job at Nordstrom to help pay for their overdue bills, Lorena began stealing dresses because she wanted John to find her pretty again. The physical and verbal abuse only escalated from there. John would scream at Lorena and drag her by her hair. He'd kick and slap her, twist her arms and feet, and choke her. Family members could tell that their relationship was bad, but she was too scared to leave him. On the stand, family friend Amelyn Hoyt testified, There was one Christmas Eve where John gave Lorena a gift and made her open it in front of everyone. And inside, there was a small pair of underwear, and he made her hold it up. Lorena got really embarrassed and tried to put it behind her back really quickly before anyone could see and got up to go cry. And John got really angry and pushed her up against the wall in the hallway and called her a bitch in front of her family. If he's willing to do that in front of her family, physically and verbally abuse her in front of her family, imagine what he's doing behind closed doors. That's terrifying. And poor Lorena. I mean, he obviously intentionally embarrassed her in front of everyone. He did that knowing she would get embarrassed and he just wanted to humiliate her. And he did. Just an awful thing. Allegedly, right? Anyway, thankfully for the defense, Lorena had reported the abuse to the police on multiple occasions, which is good because you need like physical proof when you're dealing with, you know, court. So she had called the cops on John around half a dozen times over the years they had been married. On one instance, the police had arrested John and charged him with assault and battery. It was reported she had a cut on her upper lip and was struck on both sides of her face, and photos were taken as well. So they had physical proof of this, which is very good, because John had testified on multiple occasions and will continue to testify in this trial that he had never struck his wife and there was no proof of it, which is a blatant lie. So there's that. The defense had an extensive list of witnesses they called to demonstrate just how many people had seen Lorena with marks produced by her husband. Friends, family, co-workers, and neighbors testified that Lorena was constantly covered in bruises and scars as well. Many of them testified they had seen bruises on her inner legs, on the back of her arms, her shoulders, down her arms, on her neck, and on her face. 
One of the neighbors the defense put on the stand was Ella Jones. She lived directly below Lorena and John. She testified on the stand that not only had she constantly heard the couple fighting above her, but Lorena had confided in her that her husband had raped her. And it was Ella Jones who gave Lorena the pamphlets on domestic abuse and rape, which were on her counter when the police entered her apartment looking for John's severed penis. Ella said she had experienced domestic violence herself, which is why she gave them to Lorena in the first place. Lorena had to endure an ongoing pattern of physical abuse and rape during their marriage. However, the worst of it for Lorena, and trigger warning for this because this is really awful, was John would force anal sex on her to the point where she would bleed. When he would come home drunk at three or four in the morning, she knew what he was going to do to her. And as if that wasn't horrifying enough, John would go play basketball with his buddies and brag about it. Or if not brag, then tell his guy friends that he enjoyed forced sex. Jonathan Kalpua and Jonathan Whitaker were John's basketball buddies, and thankfully, both of them testified for the defense. I'm so glad those guys did come forward with that information because so often, guys will protect their friends. Like, specifically, I'm thinking of Greek life, you know, like fraternity brothers protecting someone when, like, a sexual assault happens, not coming forward with information, and keeping someone from getting in trouble. But thankfully, these guys did come forward with information. John Whitaker said as a child, he watched his own mother be abused by his father, and he vowed he would never have a woman feel that way around him. They testified John said he liked to have forced sex because that turned him on. But not only that, but he liked to make them squirm and bleed. I don't think I could say many more horrifying sentences. I mean, that's revolting. On the stand, Lorena recalled the many occasions of rape, as well as the fact that John threatened her with more violence afterward. The defense knew it was also very important to attack the credibility of John Bobbitt, and so they called him to the stand. They had to show he was capable of lying. Blair Howard had asked if John had ever struck his wife or forced his wife to have sex. He, of course, answered no to both of those questions. When Blair Howard asked if John had ever pushed, shoved, or restrained his wife, John said he had, but only to keep Lorena from hitting him and telling her violence wasn't ladylike and he doesn't believe in violence. Which is rich coming from him. Howard presented John with a questionnaire that he had filled out in the past admitting to striking his wife and asked him if he had recognized it. John said he didn't remember any of that at all. However, on the last page, John had signed the questionnaire. So that was his first mess up. His straight up signature was on this questionnaire. And Blair Howard was like, would you mind telling me who signed this questionnaire? And he was like, oh, it was me. So there was that. The next good one was when Howard asked him if he remembered entering a guilty plea in court on February 21st, 1991, after he was charged with assault and battery of his wife. John said he never pled guilty to those charges. He didn't hit his wife or anything. The defense called Officer Gary Bodmer, who had responded to the Bobbitt home after the 911 call that resulted in those charges against John. 
and Officer Bodmer testified that John did in fact enter a guilty plea for those charges. So he was caught in another lie. I don't really understand what he thought he was going to accomplish by lying about that. Because that is something that is very easy to check on. Like, you can very easily fact check that, John. I guess he was just hoping that he wouldn't fact check him on that. But that's the entire defense's job. <laughs> like, very bold. Very bold of John to just lie so confidently and hope for the best. It's like, are you delusional or are you just a very confident asshole? I feel like it's the latter. John was also caught in another lie because he said the night that he assaulted his wife, or he said he didn't assault his wife, but he said that night there wasn't another officer that came to his door. And he said that he wasn't drunk that night, but both of those things were proven to be untrue. That other officer testified and he was like, yes, I was there. And yes, John was quite drunk. So... He's lying up a storm on the stand. And lastly, John said he never told anyone he enjoyed forcible sex, which we have heard from multiple witnesses wasn't the case. So after his testimony, people outside of the courthouse made it known how they felt about him. As he left and got into his car, the crowd booed him. And I think rightfully so. Lorena really came across as a victim. And even if people believed she had been coached in her testimony, there was pretty obvious proof that she was being abused. Meanwhile, outside the courtroom, there was still a battle of the sexes going on. There was lots of debate happening. Every man was imagining what it would be like if this happened to me. And every woman was wondering what it would take to do something like that. And for many of them, they knew. Women were kind of thrilled about it. They thought she was brave for doing something about her abuse. And she became kind of a symbol for what other battered women were going through. It was also a great time to be a fan of tabloid TV because that week, at the exact same time as Lorena's trial, the Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan scandal happened. And the Menendez brothers case was unfolding as well. So there was just a lot happening all at once. The line between news and entertainment was getting pretty blurry at that point. Lorena's trial had gotten so mainstream that if the news played anything else, there would be an uproar. Everyone wanted to know what was going on at all times, which created an immense amount of competition between reporters and journalists. And because that competition had gotten so intense, the ethical side of things kind of went out the window. Reporters did anything they could to attempt to get an interview with Lorena, even if that meant literally stalking her. There would be hundreds of reporters outside her door that would follow her to the courthouse, and when they got there, they would be met by 100 more. Cameramen would chase Lorena in her car, bang on the back door, or film her through her windows. There were occasions where Lorena would have to very quickly shut her blinds because there were cameramen peeping in through the windows with like bright light cameras filming her in any window that they could, which is so unbelievably messed up and, and unethical and intrusive. And like that must have been incredibly difficult for her. And it was. Everyone agreed that Lorena was being abused, but the mental defense was going to be very difficult. Her plea was irresistible impulse, which is very similar to temporary insanity. 
Irresistible impulse meant because of a mental disorder, you are impacted at the time of the attack to such a degree that you cannot control your impulse to act out. Juries generally do not believe in insanity. And Blair Howard knew this going in. It was going to be a struggle, but it was what it was. After a brief break, Lorena was scheduled to go back on the stand and continue telling her side of the story, along with the defense calling medical experts to support her claim of insanity. Lorena said in the spring of 1990, the abuse was constant, yet she continued to love her husband and hope that despite the abuse, the marriage would work out, which was apparently common in women experiencing that kind of battering and violence. She really wanted to give him a chance. Lorena had been raised Catholic, and her religious upbringing played a large part in her trying to force the marriage to work. She had always wanted to get married and stay married. Lorena had been a virgin when she married John, and she believed she was going to give her whole life to him when she married him. Her parents had been married for a very long time, and to have a marriage end in divorce would feel like a failure to her. It was around that time in 1990, Lorena had stopped taking her birth control because she wanted to be a mother and have a child with John. When she found out she was pregnant, she had a lot of hope John would change. She felt like she would finally get the family she wanted. Sadly, Lorena got the exact opposite reaction from John she was expecting. John definitely did not want that baby. And he allegedly told Lorena that she would be a terrible mother and would refuse to help out or support the child if she went through with having it. And he basically made her choose between him or the baby. Lorena said John took her to the abortion clinic and the whole time joked about how big the needles were going to be. Lorena was crying and shaking so much that a nurse had to separate her from John before they started the procedure. Afterward, she felt terrible and extremely guilty. And John only made that worse. He'd tell her things like she was Spanish and didn't deserve him, she couldn't speak English, and that nobody would ever want her. And she started to believe those things. Lorena said every time they fought, he would threaten to take away her paperwork from immigration and get her deported. He told her she didn't deserve to be in this country, and that she was a foreigner and an alien. She was terrified she wouldn't get her green card. Once this testimony hit the news, and more specifically the Hispanic radio stations, Hispanic people from all over started pouring in to stand outside the courthouse to show support for Lorena. A lot of the Hispanic community living in Maryland and D.C. didn't have access to Manassas, Virginia because it was beyond the reach of the metro rail. But as a community, people were calling into the radio stations offering each other rides, whether they were Hispanic or someone who had just been affected by abuse. And even though it was a bitterly cold January, somewhere around 50 to 100 Hispanic supporters were outside the courthouse every day showing their support with signs saying things like free Lorena Bobbitt. That was incredible for Lorena to see because she finally felt like she wasn't alone. In 1993, when this happened, over 2,000 women were killed by their intimate partners. There was no national domestic violence hotline or federal funding for shelters, so desperate women who were stuck in these situations were at times turning to desperate measures. But Lorena had tried to get help before she took that drastic measure. 
On one occasion, she attempted to record the verbal abuse with a tape recorder to show to a divorce lawyer. But unfortunately, John found it before she had the opportunity to contact the lawyer. And when he found the tape recorder, he beat her and raped her and told her if she left him, he'd follow her and threatened her saying he knew where she worked. Lorena felt like she couldn't talk to anyone about what she was going through because she was ashamed, embarrassed, and scared of John. She was having trouble eating or sleeping. Lorena had even attempted to file a restraining order against John. She tried to do that on Monday, June 21st, 1993, so a day before the incident. She couldn't get the order issued because whoever needed to issue it told her their secretary was at lunch, so she would have to come back either in a few hours or the following Wednesday. But she had work and couldn't come back that day, and by Wednesday, it would be too late. Isn't that so messed up? She tried. People kept saying she could have done this, she could have done that. It was such a drastic measure she took, and yeah, it was. But it's not like she didn't try to do things first. She was calling the cops on him. She did try to get a restraining order. She was trying to contact a divorce lawyer. She was backed into a corner. And that's exactly what they're proving right now. But it's not like she was not trying, is the point. So it's just so tragic to think that, like, she maybe could have gotten a restraining order if this person's secretary wasn't at lunch. Like, I doubt anything really would have gotten solved by just that restraining order, but who's to say? Lorena was still technically living in the same house with John, but she had moved a lot of her things out to a neighbor, Diana Fletcher's apartment, and was really only sleeping in her apartment. So here's what happened the night of June 22nd, 1993, according to Lorena's testimony. Lorena Bobbitt went to work as a manicurist at a local nail salon. She got a call from John asking what time she was supposed to be home. She told him she'd be working until around 8 that night. She said she decided not to stay with a friend that night because she didn't want her friends to know that John had been hitting her again. John had his friend Robert Johnson staying with them, so the two men went out drinking that night. On the stand, he said he had five beers and one B-52. And in the documentary I watched, he said he had two beers and two B-52s. He said he wasn't drunk in the interview, but on the stand, Robert Johnson said they were definitely drunk. He arrived home at 3.15 a.m. He woke up Lorena when he slammed the door. He got into bed, and on the stand, John said he doesn't remember if he had sex with Lorena or not. However, Lorena testified that John raped her and sodomized her that night when he got home. Afterward, she asked him why he would do that to her again and again and why he would hurt her and hurt her feelings. But she got no response from him. At a loss for what to do, Lorena got up and went to the kitchen to get a glass of water to calm herself down. As she stood in the kitchen, illuminated only by the refrigerator light, she saw the knife. She thought about all the physical and sexual abuse she had suffered, all the put-downs, all the threats, and after that, she said she blacked out. The next thing she remembered was driving with the knife in one hand and John's penis in the other. She was shaking and got scared, which is when she slowed down and threw it out the window by the 7-Eleven. The next thing she knew, Lorena had unintentionally driven herself to work in the middle of the night. 
Still covered in blood, she tried opening the door but couldn't get it open because she still had the knife in her hand, so she decided to throw it out in the trash can outside of her job. She finally opened the door and felt some peace because her work was where she felt safest. And from there, she went to Jana's home. Dr. Susan Feister had been called by the defense. She was the medical director at the Psychiatric Institute of Washington, D.C., and had treated hundreds of patients who had a history of being battered or raped. Dr. Feister said Lorena was suffering from PTSD, major depressive disorder, and panic disorder at the time she cut off her husband's penis. She described Lorena as a classic example of a battered wife, weakened by years of abuse and fearful of leaving her husband. And in her opinion, meant she didn't have control over her actions at the time. She was in severe distress. Her husband had psychologically closed off every avenue of escape for her. He said it didn't matter if she left because he would continue to be violent, rape her, and abuse her. So she had a psychotic break and in that moment attacked her instrument of torture, her husband's penis. And according to Dr. Feister, that is consistent with Virginia's definition of irresistible impulse. Some people found it hard to believe that Lorena would have such a vivid memory of everything leading up to the attack and then no memory of the actual event. They felt that was very convenient. The night of the incident, she also gave a statement that she was very angry when she grabbed the knife, which they felt contradicted her story. Even though Lorena's testimony on the stand about that night was extremely compelling and heartbreaking, the defense hadn't won over the jury just yet. That was until Regina Keegan's testimony and what came after. Her testimony was extremely important in showing Lorena suffered from PTSD. She was a client of Lorena's. She had seen Lorena just days before the incident. She was going to get a manicure and her eyebrows waxed. When Regina sat down with Lorena for the first time, Lorena had rolled up her sleeves to begin working on her nails. But when she did, Regina saw Lorena had black and blue bruises all around her wrists all the way up to her elbows. When Lorena saw Regina see her bruises, she immediately pulled her sleeves back down. The manicure continued for a little while, but Lorena had begun breathing erratically, and her hands were shaking and tears began welling up in her eyes. Regina asked where she got the bruises on her arms from, because she was very concerned for Lorena, and she told Regina that her husband had done that to her. He held her over the railing of their balcony, about to drop her over, and told her if he did, he'd tell everyone she jumped. Regina said she needed to get out of that situation. Lorena could even stay with her if she needed. But Lorena told her her husband would kill her, and would even kill Regina. Regina didn't want to leave her there that day, but there was nothing she could do. Regina had heard gossip about the quote-unquote crazy lady with the knife, but Regina was a busy mother. She wasn't watching TV or reading the paper, so she wasn't keeping up with anything. It wasn't until months later, one night when her kids were out of the house and she was folding socks in front of the TV, that she saw Lorena Bobbitt walk across her screen. That's when she put together what had happened. Regina didn't know what she could do, but she knew that was the girl she had met all those months ago. So she called the Prince William Courthouse and was connected to Paul Ebert, prosecutor Paul Ebert. This was after John Wayne Bobbitt's trial had already happened. 
She told him her story. And according to Regina, Paul Ebert said, Son of a bitch, if I had this, I could have nailed that bastard. He said, I can't use you, but I want you to call Blair Howard, a.k.a. Lorena's defense attorney. He gave her a direct line to Lorena's defense attorney. And when she called, they didn't know how she got the number. But Regina told them Paul Ebert had given it to her. And when she was put on the stand in court, her testimony was huge for the defense. When Paul Ebert was given the chance to cross-examine her, he had no questions. Isn't that incredible? She contacted Paul Ebert, who is supposed to be the person who is, like, against Lorena, right? And he knew damn well that this testimony would only hurt his case. And yet, he still gave it to the defense, which really says something. So that, and the state's doctor that the prosecution was relying on for their case, changed his testimony in the middle of the trial. And that was because Paul Ebert apparently told Dr. Miller Ryans, the state forensic psychiatrist, to call Regina Keegan as well. Regina said that Dr. Ryans told her, Mr. Ebert told me to call you. And after their conversation, his testimony changed. And he said that Lorena Bobbitt had symptoms compatible with PTSD. Before then, his testimony was that Lorena was of sound mind and had her full faculties when the incident occurred. And it was a matter of spite and anger. She showed no signs of having a psychotic episode. But after speaking with Regina Keegan, his opinion changed. So some people believed Paul Ebert didn't want to convict Lorena. And I watched a really incredible four-part documentary series about this case called Lorena. And when this part of the story comes up and someone asks Paul Ebert if he did that or if he didn't want to convict Lorena, he said he treated it like any other case. He just went for it and wanted to see what would happen. But he smirks at the end of saying that. And you could tell he knew exactly what he was doing, which is just so incredible. So it seems like Paul Ebert was on Lorena's side too, which is just so good. Paul Ebert, the prosecution, gives the defense a witness that basically makes their entire case for the jury. And then when he has the opportunity to cross-examine her, he says, no questions. I mean, that's just incredible. Someone shake that man's hand. When it came down to the jury, according to juror Clay Kokalis, he said, quote, most of the jurors, whether they wanted to admit it or not, might have thought Lorena was guilty, but they didn't want to see her punished because of the way her husband had treated her in the past. They felt like he had gotten what he had deserved. So, like he had said, even if they had thought she hadn't had a psychotic break, they were kind of like, well, based off of all of the evidence we have seen here today, and by today I mean throughout the trial, he kind of got what was coming to him, which is pretty funny. When it came down to the jury, they found her not guilty by reason of insanity. But that didn't mean Lorena was a free woman. She was sent to a state mental hospital to undergo evaluation. She had to stay there for 45 days to be evaluated. Lorena at first was confused about why she had to be taken away, even though she was found not guilty. It wasn't fair to her that John just got to walk free, and she had to go to a mental hospital. But that's what came with winning the insanity plea. 
And of course, with the verdict came even more debate about was it the right call? Everyone had an opinion. A lot of women felt like this was a much bigger feminist issue and were trying to use it to shed light on the much bigger issue of domestic violence as a whole, like needing Congress to pass a more comprehensive Violence Against Women Act. But a lot of men still thought Lorena was a violent, barbaric woman who should have been found guilty. Even when she was in the mental hospital, she couldn't escape attention. Everyone there knew who she was. She was constantly receiving bouquets of flowers from people who wanted an interview, and there were even helicopters that would fly over the hospital to get aerial shots of her when she was out in the yard. And while Lorena was in the hospital, John was monetizing off of all of the attention, as he loved to do. He was being invited to nightclubs, invited to talk on radio shows. He was asked to judge a Lorena lookalike contest, where he stripped and sold his underwear to the highest bidder. Everyone was fascinated with what was in John's pants. And that's when he turned to porn. He made John Wayne Bobbitt uncut. That's what the porno was called. Which is incredibly nasty. And I can't stress that enough, because... I'm pretty sure the storyline was his and Lorena's, but this was supposed to make him a fortune because the men who produced this porno knew that even people who didn't usually watch porn would buy it to see John Wayne Bobbitt's penis. They even had a traditional Hollywood screening for it. Honestly, them making this about John and Lorena's story is despicable to me, especially because their entire case was about abuse and rape. I mean, not that I expect this man to do anything classy or whatever, but that is literally revolting and despicable and, uh, it's so gross. It's so, uh, it's so gross. But unfortunately for John, the men who produced it took full advantage of him and he made almost nothing off of it. God, I wonder what it would feel like to have someone take advantage of you, John. So he made almost nothing off of this porno. And he ended up taking those producers to court, and he went bankrupt. After that, John faced new charges by another woman named Christina Elliott, a 21-year-old former exotic dancer he met while in Las Vegas. At the time, he and Christina Elliott had been engaged, and the arrest caused her to break off the engagement. A pretty good reason. On August 31st, 1994, he was convicted of battery and was sentenced to 60 days in county jail, but only ended up serving 15 days. After 45 days of healing, Lorena was released from the mental hospital. She actually was able to use her time there to talk with the doctors and process what she had been through. She had been trying to fight the PTSD, her inner demons, and all of the horrors she had been through, but she realized she needed to put herself together and keep going. And coming out, she felt a lot stronger and better equipped to move forward with healing. After her release, she set a goal to heal. No matter how public her face was, she needed to get into a routine once again. John moved to Las Vegas. John Wayne Bobbitt had been a household name. He was very famous. But when he fell from the limelight, he struggled with what to do next. So he became a reverend and could marry people. I guess it was kind of like instead of getting married by Elvis, you could have John Wayne Bobbitt marry you. I don't know why you would want that, but I guess some people did it. 
And it's safe to say that's when John got pretty desperate. He wanted to stay in the spotlight, but also he needed money. So he decided he would get a penis enlargement surgery. Not only that, but the surgery would be recorded and then it would be transitioned into another porno starring John Wayne Bobbitt's new penis. And they were calling this film Frankenpenis. This sounds made up. It's not made up. And the surgery ended up getting botched. Apparently, this doctor who did it had a bunch of lawsuits. I know, very shocking. You would think this would be a a really class act guy, but he wasn't. So John got his penis botched. He got his penis mutilated once on, you know, without his consent. And then he consented to having his penis mutilated the second time. So interesting. Domestic violence accusations and convictions continued for John after the trial in incidents involving other women he had been in relationships with. John was arrested in 1999 at the age of 32 when he allegedly held his ex-girlfriend Desiree hostage in an apartment for days after he had beat her, tied her to the bed, and raped her repeatedly. Desiree was able to get away by playing dead. According to her, John had begun gathering sheets to dispose of her body in. He had untied her from the bed and unlocked the door, which is when she ran out. Desiree said, quote, John forcibly took me out onto the balcony and pushed me over the edge of the balcony and was holding onto me by my lower legs, dangling me over the balcony, threatening to drop me. He told me I was his Lorena now, and neither she nor I or anyone that he had been with would ever escape him. John claimed to be innocent, but a judge found him guilty of harassment the following year and sentenced him to time served in addition to ordering him to discontinue all contact with Desiree. John was also arrested multiple times in the early 2000s for allegedly hitting his then-wife, Joanna Farrell. It's safe to say this man makes me sick. He's... oh my god. After the trial, Lorena's family came to the States from Venezuela to support her. This was good and bad, because she appreciated their support and love, but they didn't have legal status to work in the U.S., so she felt obligated to help her family. All she wanted to do was go back to school and get a job. It was also tough because her family didn't know how to handle what she had gone through. They wanted to help her, but they didn't know how, so there was a lot of tension which led them to not talking for a while. The real turning point for Lorena came about a year after the trial when she started going to shelters and talking about her experience surviving domestic violence. It was difficult at times to share her stories, but the more she shared, the more she realized she wasn't alone, because so many people had similar stories to share. She wanted to keep talking more about it, and she finally felt like she was healing. Lorena did go to school. She went to college, which is where she met a man named David Bellinger, They became friends, and after a while, their relationship grew into a romance. They ended up getting married and actually had a daughter together. She finally got her American dream. Now, she looks at the media as an opportunity to spread awareness on domestic violence. She has accepted interviews with comedians like Steve Harvey, and when she did that, she knew what she was getting herself into. She didn't mind the jokes he made because she was able to use his show as a way to shine light on a much bigger issue— Shockingly, but also I'm not surprised because men continue to have the audacity. John did try to keep in touch with Lorena over the years. He told her if he had the choice of any woman in the world, he would choose her. He told her he deeply regrets the way he was when they were together and he wants her back. 
He'd sent her Valentine's Day cards and emails, texts, and things to her work. Whether he actually wants to get back together with her or or he just wanted to continue making money and he knew he'd be able to profit off of the spectacle of them getting back together, who really knows? It's honestly probably both. Because in a text that was shown in the Lorena documentary from John, it said, quote, We would make a lot of money if we got back together again. So it probably is both. But Lorena said, quote, It's like I cut off his penis. Leave me alone. Which is so true, girl. And very fair. You did cut off his penis. Leave her alone. What the hell? Leave every woman alone. Today, Lorena goes by Lorena Gallo, and she lives with her partner, John Ballinger, and their daughter, Olivia. She started the Lorena Gallo Foundation, and their mission is to expand domestic violence and sexual assault prevention education, emergency response resources, and community engagement activities that will improve outcomes for survivors and their children. And I'll leave the link to that in the description, as well as the National Domestic Violence Hotline, which is 800-799-7233, or you can text START, S-T-A-R-T, to 88788. And that is the story of Lorena and John Wayne Bobbitt. Oh my god, you guys. That was really a full part one and part two, but we did that. And that documentary series, Lorena, I watched it on Amazon Prime. It was really good. It was a four-part documentary series. So check that out if you're interested. But could you imagine? I mean, for real. But men are really out here being like, oh, it's fine that you literally cut off my penis. I still want to be a part of your life. What do you mean? (laughs) So now we know you can literally cut off a man's penis and yet he will still try to contact you. That's insane. Honestly, it is so incredible, the strength and grace that Lorena had after the trial with how she was able to heal because she wasn't expecting to go to the mental hospital. She was confused about that. She didn't know when they read the not guilty verdict that she was immediately going to be carted off. Like her defense attorneys had told her that that was what the outcome would be. But I don't think she really understood fully that that was what was going to happen to her. And she also didn't fully understand how affected she was by the prolonged abuse that she had suffered. So for the first little bit of her being there, she was really going through it. But instead of her, you know, retreating into herself and getting worse, she just accepted the help that was there for her. And she decided that it was up to her to heal herself. And even though it was painful, she needed to talk through what she had been through and face her demons and her trauma and the PTSD and everything. And she did. And then she got out of the hospital and she got herself into a routine and she got herself into school and she got herself a job and she took care of herself and her family and she had a family of her own. I mean, it's it's such an incredible story of like strength and it's very inspiring. She's a very, very inspiring woman. And she did it all by herself. So that's just really beautiful. And, you know, I probably should have ended with that one because now I'm kind of wanting to circle back and be like, oh, my God, John Wayne Bobbitt did two pornos and got his penis enlarged. And you can literally 
watch the penis enlargement surgery in the porno Frankenpenis, which I absolutely did not watch because I'm sorry, I don't want to see it. That man disgusts me. When I was talking to friends and family about the fact that I was researching this case, they're like, did you watch it? No, of course not. That's disgusting. This man is revolting to me. Absolutely not. No. But there are very, very small snippets of each of these, like, movies in the documentary. So, you know, there's that. But anyway, the fact that he was just bopping around doing TV show after TV show and and interviews and he was being invited everywhere and people were celebrating him even after it had come out what he had done. It's just like, who are you people and what is wrong with you? Like, what? You just don't care about women in general or just just this one woman you don't care about Lorena like what it's just confusing to me like what anyway we know how I feel but (laughs) I should have ended with how strong Lorena is let's do that she's amazing we love her and that's amazing okay let's end it there let's move on to the good thing my good thing is that even though I am sick I'm on like day four of this cold and I should hopefully be done with it very soon. Colds literally suck so bad. So I'm going to turn my negative into a positive. I think that I'm on the up and up. Sorry if I sounded a little bit rough here and there, but we made it through. Uh, I'm, I'm definitely going to go down some tea and uh, throw a Ricola cough drop in my, in my throat. <laughs> so that's good. I've been downing a Gatorade throughout this episode. So that's good. You got to hydrate or dihydrate, baby. And I think that's that on that. Anyways, thank you guys so much for listening. If you would like to look at all the pictures we post of all the stories we talk about, check us out on Instagram at NotToday underscore podcast. If you would like to check out bonus episode 16, check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash NotTodayPodcast. If you or anyone you know has a story of survival or anything crazy that you would like to share with us and possibly hear on an upcoming listeners episode, send it to NotTodayPodcast at gmail.com. We have a TikTok that is not today podcast and a Twitter that is not today podcast, but the T on the end of podcast is a three because that makes sense. And just keep breathing. Yeah. <laughs>